Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today, we are talking about one of the most extraordinary kingdoms of ancient Africa, the Kingdom of Kush, a kingdom that lasted for centuries and had interactions with the pharaohs of Egypt, the Ptolemaic dynasty, that Hellenistic dynasty that also later ruled Egypt, and of course, the power that then superseded the Ptolemies, the Romans. Now, joining me to talk through the history of the Kingdom of Kush, particularly focusing on their interactions with Imperial Rome, is Luke Pepperer. Luke is a brilliant archaeologist, anthropologist and historian and he writes all about the history of Africa. He especially focuses on Africa in the Middle Ages but he also has a great interest in ancient Africa, particularly the Kingdom of Kush. So it was fantastic to have him on the show to talk through all things the Kingdom of Kush. Here's Luke. Luke, great to have you on the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, the Kingdom of Kush and the Kingdom of Kush and the Romans, but the Kingdom of Kush in particular, this is an astonishing ancient African kingdom that had contacts with the Egyptians, the Persians, the Greeks, as I mentioned, the Romans and many other ancient civilizations. Yes, no, I mean, indeed, it, I think it's particularly where it's located. Obviously, it's just south of Egypt and because of that has quite intense contact with Egypt during its lifetime. In fact, it only really flourishes when Egypt goes through its periods of decline um, and then Kush itself becomes less important as Egyptian rulers in particular either unify or become stronger and consolidate their power and push further into Kush. And then obviously also the time period is really interesting as we will see later on. Um, the formation uh, or the beginning of the Roman Empire actually you know, coincides with one of Kush's peak points when Kush is at its most um, most powerful, uh, most culturally important and most economically important with trade. And because of the Roman connection as well, you have a lot of Greek influence, including Greek language, infiltrating or that Hellenistic, yeah, that Hellenistic influence infiltrating into Kush, especially the north of Kush, um, right next to Upper Egypt, which is the southern part of Egypt because of the way the Nile flows. But you have the language and the culture and the education and essentially the scholastic bent as well of Greece filtering through to, yeah, that southern, that south of Egypt, you know, that part of Nubia um, or Nubia itself, which is that part just south of Egypt. Um, and you actually have examples, in fact, of Nubian individuals 
princes as well who actually are schooled in Greek and Greek education and serve, for example, in Roman regiments. So it's at this crossroads of cultures and of civilizations. You mentioned there how the Kingdom of Kush, it's centred south of Egypt. So does that mean, topography-wise and geography-wise, is the River Nile right at the heart of this civilization? Oh, yes, certainly. I mean, the River Nile is actually what gives birth to the civilization, And initially, when the area dries out, and this is about 5000 BC, a lot of communities which are nearby move closer towards the banks of the Nile and they essentially congregate on those banks and this is actually what gives birth to the first settlements and complex communities because being in the more fertile land they're able to grow more crops, uh, more crop yields leads to uh, different kinds of civilizational developments including social stratification and also the birth of artisans because not everybody now needs to be farming so certain people can focus on becoming merchants or becoming craftsmen and then they can trade these goods further afield and this leads as well to the development of hierarchies and of rulers and of different classes of people. These communities then congregate around what becomes the first capital of Kush, which is Kerma. But it is the Nile, which as well as being the lifeblood of Egyptian civilization, is also the lifeblood of Kushite civilization. And ancient civilizations, as you probably well know, all congregate around these waterways and irrigation is incredibly important as what leads to the development of complex civilizations in Mesopotamia as well. So that's absolutely crucial, but it's that focus on being able to grow enough food that not everybody needs to be farming and allows all these other aspects of of humanity, essentially, of human culture, of human thinking, of human ambition to take form and to develop. You mentioned there how there was, as if it were, the first capital of the Kingdom of Kush. Does this really emphasise that perhaps the Kingdom of Kush that was interacting with Egypt during the pharaonic times, because this is such huge time spans, was quite different in its appearance to the Kingdom of Kush that, for instance, comes into contact with the Romans. Oh, yes, definitely. I think it's also quite useful to divide. They're almost like they're almost two Kushes because there is the Kush, which is a bit closer um, to Egypt, or rather maybe dividing Kush into two regions because there's the northern parts, which is closer to Egypt and closer to Rome. And therefore, that's where the most intense contact between cultures takes place. And there's also the southern part of Kush, which is actually where people want to be, or the Kushites themselves in particular, want to be a lot more um, independent. And a lot of Egyptian culture or, you know, Roman goods, etc. doesn't flow down to that part as much. They very much want to be a lot more independent. But then also it is based on time spans as well. For example, um, Kerma, which exists sort of 2500 to 1500 BC, at one point it is ruled by the pharaohs. Um, I think it's Amos the first, or one of the pharaohs marches into Kush, or into yeah into Kerma, and his line actually becomes the rulers of Kush for about 500 years, and that's in the very early stages. And because of that, a lot of the um, elites adopt Egyptian culture and burial ceremonies and types of dress, etc. But later on, as Egypt goes through a period of decline, and this is, uh, this is you know, almost a thousand years later on, this is maybe 250, 300 AD, the, the Kushites basically move further south. Their first capital, a capital called Napata, is sacked. 
by a pharaoh called Samaticus II, but they've moved down to a place called Meroe, which really flourishes in the periods that I mentioned, sort of the 2nd and 3rd century AD. And here, especially, there is a king, a Kushite king, um, who is very, very keen to move away from Egyptian culture. So he emphasizes the Kushite gods over the Egyptian gods, including the war god um, Apadamak. And this, and this king's name is um, Archimani, Archimani I. And he introduces new language and the Meroitic script, which actually is yet to be deciphered. He does away with hieroglyphics. He also makes sure all motifs, more sort of African motifs rather than Egyptian motifs, animals like ostriches and elephants, etc., feature more prominently on temple walls. Um, and he starts burying people in the Kushite style. And even in these, you know, in these depictions, the Kushites are wearing their more traditional clothing and that sort of thing. But because this site Meroe is sort of further down the Nile, it's a lot further away from Egypt. So it gives it the space basically to flourish independently. And it's in a place where because of the high amounts of rainfall, there are also greater crop yields and there's also a huge amount of iron and hardwood. So there's essentially an industrial revolution in Meroe around this time and they start making iron weapons and iron goods, which they're trading all over this part of the world, including especially in the Middle East, because the Middle Eastern armies um, use iron weapons and the Egyptians, who are in intense rivalry with the Mesopotamian armies or, you know, the Assyrians and so forth, need iron weapons in order to compete with them. So then the demand for iron from Kush is huge. So Kush grows really, really rich. It's at this crossroads between the trade of the Red Sea the interior of Africa and Egypt, and it's moving exotic goods like ebony and ivory and animals north to Egypt, and it's creating its own iron, and it's trading that to Assyria and Egypt, so it grows really, really rich, and because of that, it can flourish independently as a culture as well as a society. So later on, it becomes a lot more independent because of Archimani. But in the first period, even the more important Kushite kings like Kashta um, and Pie love Egyptian culture. They adopt it nearly wholesale. But the record as well is a bit skewed because a lot of Egyptians who were writing a fair amount as well have quite a hostile view of the Kushite. So they present them as being just this satellite culture with no real ingenuity of its own. Of course, we know that not to be true. And there is a rivalry between the two. But there are some Kushite kings who perhaps as well have Egyptian blood who are adopting the culture wholesale and see themselves as... Egyptian rulers who are ruling just a region of Egypt as opposed to this separate culture. So there's this north-south divide, and then there's also a time divide as well. Absolutely. Is that also kind of emphasised by the those astonishing pyramids that are surviving at Meroe? Yes, exactly. So those pyramids are part of the Kushite adoption of culture. But it's interesting because they're kind of obviously this uh, this mix, you know, they're almost this, this syncretic mix between Egyptian culture and also trying to do something different. So although they take their basic forms from the Egyptian pyramids, they're also distinguished by being slightly smaller. Um, and they also have these passageways. There's an entrance and then there's a there's a sort of corridor leading to the main burial chamber. And they were initially also topped with gold 
which was an important Kushite commodity. But these were plundered by um, Giuseppe Fellini, who was an Italian well, Italian treasure hunter. Um, and he heard about the gold of Kush and he was not interested in archaeology at all, but he just plundered them, basically. But, you know, within these walls, and these not being well known, but these would have been the tombs of rulers, some of whom were harking a tiny bit back to the Egyptian past. It's almost like the roots are there, but they want to do something different as well. That's astonishing. And let's move on then to the dawn of the Roman interactions with the Kingdom of Kush, because just before these interactions start happening, the Kushite capital, from what you're saying, it is based at Meroe by this time. Yes, so the Kushite capital, by the time the Romans are involved, is based at Meroe. And Kush has grown quite wealthy. I mean, the Romans really start, again, as Essentially, it's because of the birth of the Roman Empire, you obviously have this rivalry uh, between Octavian, Octavian Caesar, and then Cleopatra the Seventh and Mark Antony, who are fighting each other for control, essentially, of the Roman Republic when uh, it was a Lepidius or has been exiled. And when Octavian manages to defeat Mark Antony and Cleopatra, both of whom um, end up taking their own lives. Well, Mark Antony takes his own life because he hears a rumour Cleopatra has been killed, which turns out not to be true. And then Cleopatra takes her own life when she realises she would rather die than be taken as a kind of bounty or, you know, as a treasure to Rome. And then Octavian Caesar, who launches this really effective propaganda campaign against Mark Antony, saying that he wants to install his own children as consuls and, and and rulers of the different parts of the Republic and the expanding empire, etc., inherits the, uh, it becomes essentially the first Roman empire, you know, it becomes the first ruler um, of this great empire. And when Octavian becomes emperor, obviously, and Cleopatra is defeated, he takes control of Egypt, essentially. He annexes Egypt after the Battle of Actium. And the Romans are also renowned for having quite an unfair and heavy tax policy. They are heavily taxing Egypt and by extension Northern Kush as well, especially because there's a lot of grain and it becomes an important source of grain for the ever expanding Roman Empire. So they begin by annexing it, imposing heavy tax on the region. And after a period of time, this actually leads to tax revolts in Egypt uh, around Thebes or beginning in Thebes. And these tax revolts are possibly supported by um, the Kushites and the Kushite rulers as well. So that is the beginning kind of, of the interaction between Kush and Rome. It begins essentially with this discontent at the heavy tax that's being levied on the region and sort of Kushite interference in Roman affairs. And initially Rome is because this is the beginning is especially almost of its heyday. So they are looking at Kush, which is rich and did have quite a powerful army. It is revered by the Egyptians as the land of the bow because they're known for having particularly skilled archers and particularly skilled horsemen. But Rome essentially views it as a nuisance to begin with. So that is the beginning of the interaction. That is absolutely astonishing. I find the time frame of that, how quickly, as it were, after the death of Cleopatra and Mark Antony and Egypt finally becoming this direct Roman province, that they come into, I don't want to say the word conflict, but they come into troubles with the kingdom of Kush. It's, it sounds like it's really quick. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, it's, it seems to be within a year or two, because I think it's around 30, 31, 32 BC that Mark Antony and Cleopatra are defeated. And Octavia, I believe, is actually marched into um, to Egypt to 
or to take control of it, but also to uh, uh, to capture Cleopatra. And about a year or two after Cleopatra's death and Octavian's is now called Augustus by the Senate, Augustus's ascendancy to become first emperor of Rome, the Kushites, and the imposition of that tax policy, which I believe the Romans were also doing in other parts of their empire. The Kushites are saying, you know, we're, we're not having any, we're not having any of this. But I think they were almost sort of battle-hardened as well because a similar kind of rivalry between empires obviously takes place between them and Egypt. Part of the reason they flourish actually is because they want to initially, or Kerma initially, the, the first settlement around 2500 to 1500 BC, one of the first reasons it flourishes is because it wants to protect its trade interests and protect itself. Uh, so there is the sense of the Kushites, especially when it comes to money, tax, being merchants, um, production, industry, etc., are quite fierce at protecting their own interests, but they've had to do that for centuries. Of course, especially from what you were saying, going back all the way to the Assyrians and the Egyptians and the important role they play in trade for that, isn't it? It seems to be a thread that is ongoing underneath all this, and I'm sure we'll be coming back to it very quickly as well. And at the time, at this time, who is ruling the kingdom of Kush? That's a very good question. I believe at this time that these tax revolts are happening. The ruler is actually Amani Rhenus. Um When Archimani, who's this first a king who introduces a lot of the Kushite culture or reintroduces a lot of the Kushite culture back. You know, he curbs the power of the Egyptian priests um, at the Temple of Amun. Um, and he makes, actually, as part of his rule, women much more important. Women were already important in Kushite society. They took part in important ceremonies, including the coronation ceremony. They were seen as being an essential part of the rulership of Kush, which had to have both a feminine and a masculine aspect. They're depicted um, in certain uh, uh, burial tombs, etc., with symbols of power, including animal tails wrapped around their bodies and so forth. But one of the things Arkamani does is to introduce these new powerful women rulers, essentially, who were able to rule in their own right. And these in the Kushite language are known as Kandankes, uh, Latinized to Candaces. And this is actually where we get the name Candace from, is from these Kandankes, because Greek and uh, Roman writers thought that the title Kandanke, which essentially means queen mother or ruler female, was a name. So they called these queens or Candace, even though they had different names. And one of the most important and one of the most powerful of these queens is Amani Rhenus who not sure exactly when um, she's born, but she's around and she's an, an adult and is ruling around 27 to 22 BC. Um, and this is when she engages in the war with Rome, known as the Mariotic War um, or the Mariotic Roman War. So she is the current ruler whilst these incursions she i think she's actually leading a lot of the um you know the incursions and a lot of the the, the skirmishes and basically being a nuisance to rome it is her that sees especially because the kushites regard themselves as being different and important and significant as well so they don't just want to be seen as a tributary you know, nation that's providing tribute to this larger empire they want to be seen as equal and powerful trade partners in their own right Absolutely. And you can understand it, especially when you consider the longevity and the lifespan of that empire and the power that it had, not just militarily, but economically as well. Yes, exactly. You know, like I say, trading 
it's you know it's very very possible actually that these trade networks were extending and going as far as India and going as far as China as well. I mean they carry a huge distance, and you can you can even see the amount of wealth that is flowing into Kirsch, uh, which is evident not only in the tombs themselves, which have you know gold everywhere essentially but also the jewelry and even the jewelry that accompanies things like their you know their animals their horses i mean this is even early on but one of the kushite kings in about 700 bc 800 bc pa buries himself with his four horses and they have the most magnificent regalia you know plumage and gold and silver and ivory and all kinds of rich you know grave goods which shows the amount of wealth that kush not only had itself but that was flowing through kush to other parts of the world and making the kushite merchants and the kushite population very wealthy indeed just before we go on to this clash of titans, as it were, between the kingdom of Kush and the Romans, what you mentioned there was astonishing about these independent queens ruling in their own rights. Has that been going on for quite a while in the kingdom of Kush? Well, it's like I said, Kushite women were always very important. There's this sense of the queen mother especially the mother of the king being very important. I mean, there's even um, evidence to suggest that the next ruler, that it wasn't passed down just from father to son, but actually the next ruler would be chosen usually as the sister's son, so the ruler's sister's son. And Kushite women and Kushite mothers, especially in the royal family, actually have the power to bestow kingship on whichever of their sons they think would be best to lead. So it actually seems to be a matrilineal society, or definitely in a lot of aspects matrilineal. And this is actually something that even still occurs in some parts of Africa today, these matriarchs essentially, who decide which one of their children, you know, the sister's children, will become the next ruler. And if the ruler or if the son isn't old enough, then the woman, the mother, rules as regent but even when the son comes of age and is ruling as uh, well you can't say an independent ruler but he basically he's always ruling with the the advice and with the influence of his mother it's not as though the mother's cast aside and the king does exactly what he wants so actually these female warriors these candaces introduced it seems by Archimani, um actually some of them go into battle uh, with their sons and you actually see this in certain reliefs in burial tombs. Um, so, for example, one of the earliest recorded queens is a queen called Shamak Dekete, and um, she's shown leading her troops into battle. And there is actually, as well, a picture of Amani Rhenus, or, or a, a, an image of Amani Rhenus, who, when she is battling the Romans, is actually entering the battle as well with her son um, called Arkinadad. So that image that we have of Armani Rhenus, she's wearing battle dress and she's in the midst of battle with her son. Um, and so there is this kind of close relationship and this close union between the female rulers and the male rulers as well. One isn't favoured so much over the other because even though a male is made technically the king or the ruler of Kush, in the background... The women, and especially the mother, is seen as having an important influence. And this actually mirrors the religious belief system of Kush. Elements are somewhat borrowed from Egypt, but in Kush you have these important female gods who always stand behind the male gods supporting them. And that mirrors what happens in, in the mortal world as well. 
male kings, male rulers don't rule independently. They always have either a wife or a mother who is ruling almost alongside them um, and acts as it's always a very, it's a kind of yin and yang relationship, you know, acts as a complement um, to the male side of rulership. You have to have that side, but you also have to have this female side is equally important for a flourishing rule and for a flourishing kingdom. Absolutely. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay then, so how does the war between Amani Reynas and the Kingdom of Kush and the Romans, how does it progress? What do we know about what happens? So, like I said, it begins with these uh, tax revolts that are taking place and the Roman prefect, essentially one of the first Roman prefects at the times, is charged with suppressing them. So he suppresses the revolts that are taking place in Thebes and he also suppresses those that are taking place in northern Nubia as well, which is also in chaos. And this prefect, whose name is uh, Cornelius Gallus, rides into Nubia by force and he appoints a Roman client as ruler of Nubia. And he says to the Nubians, you have to pay the Romans tribute now. And that's happening for about five years. Relationships are getting even worse. And then about four or five years later, um, Cornelius Gallus is actually replaced by another Roman prefect. Basically, the Assyrians at this time are causing trouble to Rome as well. So he's charged with marching into Arabia Felix, alias I believe his name is. He marches into Arabia Felix, which is modern day Yemen, and is fighting the Assyrians there. And it is while he's away that Amani Reynas leads a leads a Kushite army to the southern frontier of Egypt and she captures the town of Aswan and other Roman forts as well. Um, Aswan is the fort which is the southernmost point basically of Rome, of the Roman Empire. She captures that, she captures other forts, um, she sacks different temples and important uh, religious buildings as well, but important buildings including Philae and Philae as well. She's keen to sack because it includes or it has within it it contains 
statues of Augustus. Uh, so she actually is concerned with capturing certain statues of, of, of Augustus. And she actually takes back not only several statues, but as well as the, the head of several bronze statues or the head of one particular statue, which uh, she buries under the entrance of basically the temple in Meroe. So therefore, all the devotees who are walking into the temple to pay their respects to the Kushite gods walk over the head of Augustus. And this is not only as well a sign of, uh, sign of disrespect, but it also reflects the Kushite beliefs, you know, by walking over um, your enemy, by stepping on and over your enemy, his power in the real world as well, even though it's just a depiction, his power in the real world would be severely weakened. And it is after that now, Alias, his expedition, so the, the Roman prefect Alias, his expedition into Arabia is a disaster. Um, the person who he asked to escort him turns out to not really be on his side and leads him into dangerous and 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 dry territory and yeah and, and it's just it's just an absolute disaster so he comes back having lost the majority of his army and because of his failure he's replaced by another prefect so there are three prefects who are basically charged with defeating Kush he's he's replaced by another called um Gaius Petronius um and Gaius Petronius who defeats the Kushites who have taken control of some of these temples and he forces the Kushites to retreat further south. And then he says there is an opportunity to make a peace between us. So um, he gives them a series of demands and says you have three days to acquiesce to these or we will continue fighting. And in three days, he doesn't hear from the Kushites. So he again marches further south into Kushite territory. He gets to the town of Napata, which used to be the Kushite capital, but it's now more of a second capital. And he sacks that city, imprisoning a lot of its inhabitants. He also conquers a town called um, Kasser Ibrim, and he leaves a garrison there. And that's quite far south into Kushite territory. And then after he builds this fort, this garrison at Kasser Ibrim, he returns back to Egypt, essentially, and he's staying in Egypt. He's hanging out there. Now, Amani Rhenus is not put off, and the Kushites themselves don't seem to be put off at all by having one of their more important cities sacked. In fact, this sort of revitalizes them. Um, and I guess another important thing to mention is that when Kasa Ibrim, which is this Kushite town, is taken back by the Romans, Amani Rhenus actually loses her son. So I think she'd put her son basically in charge of Kasa Ibrim. I think it had already been Kushite territory, but she, her son is put in charge of there. And during the conflict where Gaius Petronius takes it back, he dies. Um, he's killed in battle. And that's probably actually what does revitalize the Kushites and Amani Renus in particular. She's motivated, she's grieving, but she's also motivated by revenge for her dead son as well, because he was actually supposed to become the next ruler and he was being courted to become a ruler and they'd fought alongside one another. And she was mentoring him to take over uh, the throne of Kush. Um, so he dies. So she tries to retake Kasa Ibrim, but um, Gaius Petronius, who hears of this large Kushite force coming back into the town, marches south again and bolsters the town's defenses. And there's a bit of a, a stalemate, which is which is happening. No one's really making any progress. So they lay down their arms, and Amani Renus confronts Petronius, and Petronius says again. 
we're going to try and sue for peace. You know, the Kushites have been a thorn in the Roman side for quite a bit of time. They just want to be done with it. And Petronius himself is not keen to keep on fighting these very hostile people. Because like I said, they're not only effective fighters, but they are fairly warlike. Um, and they aren't just going to, you know, bow down unless they get their way. And Gaius Petronius thinks that it's just a lot more trouble than it's worth. So he says Augustus is willing to lay down his arms or lay aside his arms if you negotiate a settlement. And Amani Rainus actually at that point um, agrees, but she only agrees, I think, because she gets the indication that she's going to actually gain quite favorable terms from this treaty or from this peace. So Augustus at the time is um, on the island of um, Samos and she sends some of her advisors and negotiators to Samos just off the coast of Western Turkey and they negotiate a peace. And the peace treaty, the treaty is actually incredibly favourable to the Kushites, which is what is interesting. All the conquered lands, including Casa Ibrim, this town you know, quite far south, all the conquered lands from Rome's and Nubian territory are given back to the Kushites and a Greek historian called Strabo, who was living in Turkey, or what was then called Asia Minor. But he's living there at the time of the transition from the Roman Republic to the Empire. And he writes this book called Geography, which is a count of all the peoples and territories known to him at that time. And he records that the Meroitic envoys, the ambassadors, so these are the being the Kushite ambassadors, obtained everything for which they asked. Um, and the Roman Empire even remitted the taxes that he had levied on the region. Region. So Augustus says, okay, we won't tax you anymore or, or so much anymore. You can have the lands we conquered back and we want to reopen trade negotiations and trade relationships. Petronius and the Romans, they evacuate Casa Ibrim and the surrounding region. And again, the surrounding region is exempted from tribute. Amani Renus does have to give back as part of the peace treaty some of the statues that she stole. But funnily enough, she does actually keep the head of Augustus. She keeps the head of Augustus, which is actually now in the British Museum. It's called the Meroe Head of Augustus. So you can actually go when the museum opens and visitors are allowed in. One can actually go and see it. You know, this head that Amani Renus took from the temple at Philae. And what is also a nice sentimental, but also quite um, romantic end is that at Casa Ibrim, Amani Renus erects a stelae in commemoration of her son, Archimedad, um, who died in, in the battle there. Um, so a funerary stelae is erected there to honour him. And that ends the conflict with the Romans and the Kushites. And I think the Romans as well were especially keen I think they were more keen to re-establish trade relationships and trade negotiations with Kush. I mean, Kush had fantastic contacts, especially with the interior of Africa. I mean, all of the exotic things, you know, if we look at sort of Roman art and you're seeing all these fantastic images of, you know, lions and elephants, you know, all that type, that all comes via Kush. You know, all the gold and ebony and ivory um, a lot of the jewelry and iron, all of these things, even the wheat, that all comes from Kush as well. And because of, you know, even in our ideas about the Romans, we have this idea of the lions and the colosseum, whatever it is, you know, there's this 
quite sort of African influence or these African motifs and African features um, which are very much a part of and are present in Roman society and I think Kush is one of the main thoroughfares through which a lot of these influences are coming into Rome. I mean Kush itself after it moves down to Meroe um, and this is sometime after Samaticus you know sacks Napata as well but they move down to Meroe um, and they become a lot more African than they do um, Egyptian, more local gods um, because of the increased rainfall. They don't need to rely on the flooding of the Nile in order for higher crop yields. They can spread out over a wider area. So local chiefs become a lot more important. And I think they curb the power even of the pharaoh or the Kushite king who when he was more Egyptian in attitudes and culture, when the people were more Egyptian in attitudes and culture, he is this, you know, godlike figure whose authority is absolute. Um, and in later times, when the chiefs essentially become more important and an African culture takes a bit more hold on Kush, the final authority of the Kushite king relies a lot more on as well or or the 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 chiefs the chiefs who are in different parts of the kushite empire different parts of the region um are also significant and also have say over the decisions the king makes um, and even who you know the king should be as well and they can depose him if they feel he doesn't have enough support or if they feel he's not doing a very good job and it is this distinctive culture which i think influences rome in the later years sort of beginning just before the year zero and um, onwards until about maybe 200 AD and because Kush goes into decline around 300 AD um, and finally declines after the Aksumites of the south there's a new powerful kingdom in the south the kingdom of Aksum which invades Kush and sacks Meroe and the Kushites abandoned that's in, that's in about 330 AD and the king the Aksumite king um, Azana actually adopts Christianity. So he sees much more of a, you know, Rome starts bypassing Kush after Kush is declining anyway, is trading more with Aksum. The king of Aksum, Azana, adopts Christianity, aligns himself more closely with Rome, sacks Kush, and the Kushites, 20 years after, abandon the city. And that's the end of one of the ancient world's most magnificent empires. I mean, it's absolutely remarkable what you've been saying there, especially when we consider the war, first of all, how it's as if the Roman relationship with Kush is first of all hostile, but then with the treaty, and as you say, it sounds like they feel like they've really met their match. Kush isn't a client state. It is on an equal footing to the Roman Empire. But then from what you're saying in regards to trade, in regards to politics and connections with the Mediterranean world, that the Kingdom and Kush and the Roman Empire, they're managing to coexist peacefully. And actually, there's a lot of benefit in this peace, in this trade. As you mentioned, Kush's connections with the interior of Africa. But interestingly, what you're saying at the end, the Kingdom of Kush comes to an end, as it were, inadvertently by something that is created within the Roman Empire, which is Christianity. Christianity, yes, yes. I mean, that's the final blow. Kush, it is said, was probably going to decline anyway, because of, you know, its iron industry led to deforestation and they were overgrazing the cattle, the amount of cattle um, over a wide amount of land led to overgrazing. Um, so there was a lot of environmental decline, which hastened the decline of Kush. But no, you're absolutely right. The final blow of the Kushite empire comes because of 
the invasion of the Aksumites, who are this Christian nation. And, and actually, Itzana is an interesting figure, the Aksumite king, because he adopts Christianity, I mean, very, very soon after Constantine. It's like 10 years or something, very, very soon after Constantine does. And Aksum being in modern-day Ethiopian Eritrea and the Ethiopian Orthodox Church being one of the oldest in the world. But yes, when as Kush goes into environmental and economic decline, Rome is trading more with Aksum. And then Izana, seeing the opportunity here, adopts Christianity. And it is that, I mean, this was at a time still where both when Constantine adopts Christianity and um, Izana adopts Christianity, that Christianity basically starts to become an important religion because before that it, it wasn't, you know, it was a very, very fringe religion. But with the adoption of these two powerful empires adopting it, Kush is sidelined, um, you know, it's, it's left out essentially because it is still the pagan in what they would both consider to be a pagan declining uh, kingdom. And the relationships between Axum and Rome grow ever tighter, especially after they both adopt Christianity and Kush's decline was hastened, but it was inevitable anyway. It wouldn't have been able to flourish unless it also adopted Christianity. And that might have been an interesting course of history, but uh, not one which which were party to, um, for better or for worse. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed, indeed. We got the history that we have. Exactly. And it is interesting, just before we wrap up, I'd like to go back quickly to that big period in between the decline and the initial war with the Romans at the time of Augustus. Because you mentioned during the war, we have this astonishing combination of archaeology. You mentioned the head of Augustus, epigraphy. You mentioned that stele. And we've also got literary mentions in Strabo. In that period following, in those 200 or so years following, where it seems to be quite peaceful between Kush and the Roman Empire, do we have much, let's start with the archaeological or epigraphical evidence from the Kingdom of Kush that really emphasises this connection with the Roman Empire? Yes, well, I think the north, especially northern Nubia, has very, very close relationships with the Roman Empire. I'm not sure so much in terms of the archaeological evidence. We have a lot in terms of um, of, of a bit of uh, a bit of written evidence. Um, like there's one Kushite individual, for example, who starts who is writing a Greek poetry, and he serves in the Roman legion, and he's writing on the palace walls some of this Greek poetry, which is considered actually um, to be quite avant-garde as well. But you see, I don't know if in Kushite let's say tombs especially northern kushite tombs you see a lot of you see a lot of roman you, you you do actually see a bit you see for example roman pottery and roman amphorae and you see um amphorae which is carrying wine for example or which used to carry wine in some of these northern nubian burial chambers as well so actually there is um a bit of archaeological evidence of things which are coming you know jewelry and uh, pottery um, and plates and some arts and crafts, which you actually find in Kushite burial chambers. And that suggests actually quite intense contact between the two empires, between the two kingdoms. But definitely the further south you go, you have the Kushites themselves trying to, or the Kushites trying to assert themselves, even in the way that they choose or name their rulers. And they use more 
Kushite epithets. They hark back to the King Kashta who founded the 25th, actually what became known as the 25th dynasty of Egypt. And he's, and this is, begins the reign of what are sometimes called the African pharaohs um, or the black pharaohs. And it is, it's a, it's, it's a bit of as well as a, a religious golden age for Europe, but Kashta, PA, especially these are the people that the Kushites of the South are harking back to. Um, whereas the Kushites of the North, they see the advantages of allying themselves more closely with the Romans, especially with this growing empire, which is becoming even more and more powerful. And Kush is sending gold and slaves and exotic animals, etc., to Rome. But like I said, metal, glass, ceramic, cups, rings, jewelry, even mirrors are found in Kushite burial tombs. And in fact, after the peace treaty is struck, between Armani Rhenus and Augustus, or Gaius Petronius, his prefect. The Romans, even though they retreat, they establish what is basically a buffer zone. So there's, so there's the south of the Roman Empire, and there's this kind of buffer zone, which is basically northern Nubia. And then there's Kush proper. And it is in, in this buffer zone, or near this buffer zone, that the Roman influence in Egypt is, is very strong. So the Romans, in fact, they built roads, um, they built some temples and forts, you know, garrisons. So you see a lot of architecture as well, speaking of the archaeological evidence. You see a lot of stuff in the graves. Um, they replaced Egyptian with Greek as the language of law and administration. Um, they're importing goods. Wine, famous Roman wine, is circulating freely. And the Romans assimilated into the local elite. And Nubians wanted to become part. And these northern Nubians wanted to become part of the Roman establishment. And, and that figure I mentioned writing the poetry is called uh, Pacius Maximus or Passius Maximus. So even he has a very Roman name and he serves as a Roman cavalry officer and he's writing Greek poetry. And even Archimani, the first king who introduces a lot of these very Kushite reforms, he makes Kush a very Kushite place. You know, he reestablishes Kushite culture. He was actually schooled in, in Greek as well. He actually received a Greek education. And that's what makes him skeptical of the priests at the Temple of Amun. Um, these priests give themselves a lot of power and they basically say that in accordance with the gods, they know how long each reign of each king should be and whether he should, you know, die in order to make room for the next king, etc. And they're abusing this power quite significantly for their own interests. And Archimani, who's schooled in Greek, doesn't believe this, basically. He's not so bound by the religions and the traditions. So he actually slays the priests and curbs their power, essentially. And that wouldn't have been done if he wasn't schooled in Greek philosophy. And that's what Strabo writes about, that because he was grounded in Greek philosophy, he was able to, uh, uh, you know, to do this. He was able to be skeptical of the priest's power. So that's the evidence which suggests this intense contact, especially in the in the early days, even before, before and after the war between Kush and Rome. But like I said, it's definitely more the northern part of Kush because the southern Kushites want to establish themselves and assert themselves uh, more particularly. I mean, absolutely. It's fascinating what you're saying. First of all, with the, the border region, as it were, this buffer state in between, and now how you say Southern Kush, from the archaeology, it sounds like it really wants to emphasise its distinctive identity. Exactly, exactly. And part of us asserting that identity or part of that identity becoming a lot more unique and a lot more Kushite is because it's further away from Rome and Egypt. The further away some of the, the Kushites get from Egypt, especially, um, the more independent and the more distinctive they want their own culture to be. And they're a lot more hostile in their outlook 
towards the Egyptians and also towards the Romans. Um, for example, you find inscriptions uh, which show figures who are wearing Kushite dress um, and they're trampling on bound prisoners, which could either be Egyptians or Romans. Um, but it's a sense of othering other nations and other kingdoms. And there's also a decoration of a memorial temple, which is unfortunately now lost, which the Kushites built at the royal palace at Meroe. Um, and this depicts these are frescoes which depict bound Roman prisoners um, under the feet of a seated queen, which is possibly Amani Rhenus, actually, who is sitting upon and stepping upon uh, these bound Roman prisoners. And there's no sense of them unless they get favorable treatment wanting to become aligned with or become client states of a larger empire. Um, they want to be seen as something separate. And I think being seen as something separate culturally is very important for as well asserting and keeping control over trade and economics as well. So it probably has that advantage, um, which might be why the rulers especially are keen to do it, as well as being loyal to their ancestors and especially the 25th dynasty, which ruled Egypt from about 800 BC onwards, displaying the, the Libyans. Although these initial kings of the 25th dynasty did see themselves as the saviour of Egyptian culture from the Libyans. So there's an interesting uh, but did have a blend of Egyptian and Kushite culture and mentalities. So it's interesting how later Kushites use that history in order to assert themselves and how they make use of that past as well. Absolutely. It sounds like the later Spartans and how they try to emphasise the image that they had of the earlier Spartans, for instance, in the, in the sources, how they say Leonidas at Thermopylae, for instance. It's amazing how that can, mm. how later rulers can hark back to what they might see as the glory days and try to replicate it, correct? I mean, exactly. that's fascinating. It happens throughout history. Anyway, look, I, I could ask questions about this for hours, but I think I've got to wrap it up there. <laughs> okay, um, thank, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Tristan. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.